Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. Welcome, everybody, to uh, another episode of Between Two Chairs. Uh, my name is Fernando Arencivia, and with me, as always, is the amazing Jennifer Woolman. And we have a, a very, very special uh, episode today and an amazing guest that I know you're going to just enjoy thoroughly. And uh, for the introduction, I'm going to pass the baton over to uh, my, my, my co-chair here, Jennifer Woolman. Jennifer, take it away. Thank you, Fernando. Um, today we are super lucky that Robin Webb is gracing us with his presence and his knowledge and all of the experience he has in over 30 years of commercial real estate, specifically in the hospitality industry. He is principal of Commercial America Properties in Orlando, Florida. He is a certified commercial investment member, CCIM, a certified property manager, and a member of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, among other things he has a lot of credentials and several more certifications in the hotel industry. He's been a CCIM Institute instructor since 2005. And every time I get the opportunity to hear him speak, I leave with huge takeaways. He's works in one of my favorite asset classes, hotels, because we love to travel and we do a lot of it um, with the association. But Robin, welcome and thank you so much for joining us and agreeing to share your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Can you give us a general overview of hotels as an asset class, how they differ from commercial asset classes? Hotels are really quite different. Traditional real estate, whether it's multifamily, retail, office, industrial, we're dealing with long-term tenants. So we have tenants that are signed anywhere from one to 10 years on base leases. The length of an agreement for a hotel is one night. So that's good and bad. The positive about it is that if market conditions change, if you had an event that caused high demand or extremely low demand, uh, we've seen crises that occur. 9-11 is a great example. Uh, we can modify our rate base instantly. In a non-hospitality asset, whatever you charged three years ago is what you're charging today with some appropriate escalator. So we're very flexible, very mobile, can adjust to the market conditions instantly. Uh, there's no other asset class that can do that in the real estate space. So the pro and con is we have no guarantee uh, in hospitality that you will stay tomorrow, as opposed to a traditional long-term tenant who you can count on that cash flow. So the good news is we have great flexibility. The bad news is we're less stable in terms of income streams than another type of real estate. And how about you had mentioned once that there's two aspects to it. There's the business aspect and the actual physical asset. Can you get into that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. The hospitality industry varies in a lot of ways. There is not a single hotel product, as you know from traveling. The product itself is vastly different. Real estate is a business unto itself. The hospitality industry is a business which requires real estate. So it's somewhat different. It is an operating business with a number of profit centers, meaning the guest rooms are a profit center, the restaurant is a profit center, the, the bar is a profit center, the catering operation is a profit center, even the garage or valet is a profit center. So all of those businesses within the larger business have their own financial statements. So they generate their own revenues, they have their own specific expenses, 
when those items are all brought back together into a single scope, we then have a summary financial statement that has a lot of indirect expenses applied to it. So from an operating business point of view, it's a multiple series of businesses operating simultaneously within the same real estate structure. The real estate's sort of a necessary evil, oddly enough, for a hotel. You have to buy the real estate in order to run the business, but the business is where the profitability occurs or the loss, as the case may be. You know, I, I find this so interesting because the complexity of it is what is attracting, right? Uh, when you are in commercial real estate, you never do the same thing every day, right? And and so based on the way that your mind works, that must be very, very much what may have attracted you to, to brokering hotel transactions. But how, how did you get started in the brokering of hotels? I, I know you've elevated your game to, uh, you know, you're the Michael Jordan, in my view, of hotel transactions. So, but how did you get started in brokering? hotels. That's kind of you, Fernando. Surely you're not suggesting I have a strange mind, uh, which I would have to admit to, frankly. Uh, I came out of the hotel business. The industry was very good to me. And by the time I was uh, 26 years old, I was running 28 hotels for a regional chain. And so after traveling for seven years at seven days a week, I decided I really needed to live somewhere. So uh, I looked around and you've heard of, of Ben Franklin balance sheet where you draw a line down the center of a legal pad and say, here are my assets and here's what I'd like to do. Well, the asset list was pretty short. Uh, I'd been in the hotel business since college. I had sold some, done some selling inside the hotel business. So knew a bit about selling and knew a bit about hotels, a fair amount about hotels. And so decided that I would sell hotels, had, uh, had no real estate experience. And no one would hire me, by the way. I had, as you might imagine, in my early 30s, I had uh, had been a vice president of an operating company for several years. thought I was pretty special. Not that I had an ego, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I thought the world would be the path to my door when I decided to sell hotels. What I didn't realize is no one in Orlando owned a commercial real estate company in those days. All real estate companies were residential with the sole exception of Florida Ranchlands who put together Disney and they were a land only company. I had no interest in selling land. So I got into the business almost by default. It's what I knew. And when I got into the business, I was forced to sell houses for a year because that those were the only people that were hired. And on the 366th day, as I tell my classes, I went out on my own. I had no brokerage experience. I had no real estate experience other than selling houses, which I'd done pretty well with, but hated. And so I formed a brokerage and consulting company. Uh, in those days, I could get my broker's license after one year. So on day 366, I formed my own firm, went into business and started consulting and got on the phone and started calling people that I knew in the hotel business and ended up having really a very good career start for my first few years. So I knew nothing about real estate, but I knew a lot about hotels and I could talk operations. And so when I met with a potential buyer of a hotel, we could talk about how do you make this asset better? How could you make more money in this location? What if we lessened the labor costs in this department? Or we brought down your food cost, or we get attack the marketing, or we can improve the mix of guests by changing your marketing program so that we can bring in more groups, uh, more conventions, more corporate, less corporate, maybe more retail transient in order to pick up your average rate. So I could talk hotel, but I knew nothing about real estate. Finally, after three years in the business, I started taking my CCIM classes and realized that CCIM actually taught me real estate. That's awesome. Uh, by the way, only a person that has commercial real estate flowing through their blood can say, I was forced to sell houses. <laughs> I love that statement. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> and a lot a lot of commercial realtors do get started there and then That's right. pretty much to your point, decide to go out on their own or join a commercial firm. So I love, you know, I picked up a couple of things. I love that you did what you knew that you picked up the phone and called your spheres to get you started. 
and that when what you wanted to do didn't exist, you built it. So kudos. I, I love just those three lessons. If you tune out from now on, listeners, you'll miss a lot coming, but at least you got those three huge takeaways. So thank you for that and kudos. You also have experience owning hotels. So what is that like? What are some of the nuances of buying, selling, and investing in hotels? Hotels, because they're a different asset class, carry a higher risk. Therefore, they provide a higher return, frankly, than most other real estate. So it's that same thing that we all learned in our CI classes, that it's risk versus return. And so if you're willing to take a little greater risk, there's usually a a little better opportunity at the back end. So because of that risk, they're not for the faint of heart. When you're buying real estate assets in the hotel industry, you're looking for all of those things that you are with every other piece of commercial real estate. You're looking for location, the Conrad Hilton phrase, location, 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 that we still hear today is still valid. It's not comprehensive, however. The reality is you're looking at market trends. You need to look at where markets are moving. Uh, We've all driven by the hotels on US-1 that 40 years ago were the premier product and they were in just the right place. 40 years, however, changes location because markets change. We have locational obsolescence and all of those hotels and motels, which are now something else or they're struggling as, as mom and pops in many cases, moved, their markets moved when the interstate came in. So the highways changed the flow of where business sourced. The reality is when you're looking at investing in a hotel, you want to look at something where there's an opportunity for future, not past. And a lot of investors new in the, new in the industry make that mistake. They're looking at historic revenue, not projected potential. And so the reality is when I invest in a deal, it's based on because I no longer manage day to day what I consider to be the quality of the management in the environment, uh, the potential management, whether it's my partner or third party, and what I consider to be the future of the location as well as the asset. Competition is a major, major part of that site location and that that property identification. Uh, If there is competition in the market, it's not unhealthy. There's a reason competition is there. What I want to be comfortable with when I'm putting my money in a deal is that I know that the competition is in a different price tier or that I can improve my product in a way that it moves it to a different price tier than what the competition is. So it's about quality of product and quality of location in the end. You know, you mentioned this higher risk, higher reward. So in, in Florida right now, what what is the going cap rate in which, you know, hotels are trading? Um, just to give the audience a little bit of a sense of what that higher reward looks like. Fernando, it's, it's like every other asset class. We're watching cap rates move and move pretty rapidly as interest rates have gone up. Uh, as you're looking at the state overall, Uh, The state of Florida is currently running a cap rate of just under 9%, between 8.5 and 9. That varies actually by by market and sub-market. So when we look at at markets like Orlando, that rate is still lower. It's running 8 to 8 and a quarter type range. Uh, If you look at Miami, it's tighter yet. It's still in that 7.5% range. Palm Beach, for example, which has a smaller inventory, smaller market, and, and a higher rate is running under seven or right at seven. So the cap rates vary not only by location, they vary by market location, they vary by state, and they vary nationally. Uh, if we move that number up to a national cap rate, uh, it's above nine. Values are very specifically geographically driven. You're you're a born educator. I, I I just get that sense. I've seen you make presentations. It's it's really it's really wonderful. You know, we always get the call. 
as a commercial practitioner, I got this guy looking for a hotel or somebody wants to buy a hotel, all these things. I always say that's a very hyper specific uh, industry. And uh, I know you've made mention before about, you know, the size of the market for a broker that it wants to get into hotels. So I wonder if you could tell us how how do you advise someone that wants to that is interested in these asset in this asset class and wants to transact in this asset class and how do you give them a per, you know what perspective can you give them about how large that market is for them? The the market is essentially local. I mean on a national basis it's a trillion dollar a year market. So as particularly as prices go up which we've seen dramatic increases in both rates and prices uh, in the last five years. The markets grow and grow and grow, but the reality is you need to understand something about the size of your marketplace and where you expect to work. You know, if you're going to be an expert in Palm Beach, for example, you need to understand their 19,000 rooms. And while those assets trade at about the same rate as they do, other parts of the state is vastly different than being an expert in Orlando with 127,000 rooms. So market class, market size is vastly different. Uh, interestingly enough, to get into the business, the very first thing you have to understand is the numbers, just as it is in, in any phase of commercial real estate. And the numbers in the hospitality industry, the P&Ls are very different than they are in other commercial real estate because of the profit center nature of a hospitality operation. So the first thing I recommend to people who come up to me after class and say, gee, I want to be a broker, how do I do it? Is first learn something about your, your market. How large is it? How large does it have to be for you to make a living? Uh, because even though there are huge numbers, the numbers of transactions done in the market are relatively small. Uh, for example, in a, in a market the size of Miami, Miami only turned 26 hotels last year over a 12-month period. It means you're selling two hotels as a market a month. So that's a small market when you think about the size of it. E even in Orlando, which is a substantially larger rooms market, the number of hotels that turn in a given year is relatively small. We sold 45 hotels last year or so uh, in the Orlando Metro. So understand the scope and the size of your market. Secondly, and most importantly, you have to understand the numbers. There is a book called The Uniform System of Accounts, which is published by the American Hotel and Lodging Association. I tell everyone who asks me the question, go buy that book. Because until you understand the numbers, you can't talk the numbers. So go buy the book, learn what the numbers are, then sit down with some example P&Ls, which you can take offline. You can take them from any franchise proposing company. Uh, if you want to go look at a Holiday Inn financial statement, there are examples online. Go look at those statements, look at that book, get comfortable with where those numbers are coming from as they go into that pile and how they get segregated. Once you understand that and you can talk ultimately NOI and how you get there, then you can talk hotels. Let me ask you, is there a difference between do all hotels own their assets or are some like the land or are those separated? Does it depend on the type of hotel, whether it's flagged or not? Because I know enough about it just to be curious about it, but I'm, I'm not sure. That's about five questions, Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> okay. My daughter warned me not to do that. <laughs> you can lease the carpet in a hotel. You can lease the pictures on the wall in a hotel. So this, the capital stack or the capital structure uh, really varies by every owner, every developer. Uh, there are ground leases. The reality with a ground lease in a hotel is there are very, very few, and the reason they're very few is because the lenders d will not subordinate to a ground lease. And the ground lessor typically does not want to subordinate to a first mortgage. So you typically find hotels on owned ground. Uh, the buildings can be leased. Again, you can, you can do a net lease back on a triple net lease. Marriott has a number of triple net leases, uh, not in the company, but in the Marriott franchisee group. 
franchises are irrelevant to how the capital stack is structured. So if you want to put a brand on your hotel, you sign a franchise agreement, you pay an upfront fee, which runs anywhere from ten to $100,000 a room. In addition to that upfront fee, you pay a percentage of your ongoing revenues, and that ranges from about a low of 6% of your room's income to a high of about 13. So those financial structures are vastly different when it comes to franchise agreements, uh, when it comes to FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment are typically purchased, but they can all be leased, including your dining room furniture. If you want to, if you have a, uh, a free breakfast, uh, you don't even have to buy the furniture to put in the in your uh, breakfast room. I always love asking questions like that, and I'm sorry I threw five at you because it really does, you know, when you see a hotel, you're just, or you stay at a hotel, at least when I do, I'm like, oh, this place is so beautiful. I, but you don't think about everything that goes into the business side of that room or the restaurant where you're eating or the spa that you go to. So thank you for clarifying that for our listeners. Um, can we do a little bit of an overall market for hotels in Florida, how they're performing compared to the rest of the country in terms of like RevPAR and ADR? And then also, if you can explain what some of those metrics and acronyms mean, since we're supposed to be demystifying real estate. Okay, now that that's seven questions and one question. So, you know, just. <laughs> okay, let's talk about markets and then we'll talk about terminology. Florida does very well compared to the nation. The nation's running about a 60 to 63% annual occupancy at the current time. Uh, average rate across the country is about $150 a room. If you compare that to Florida overall, we're running almost 10 points higher. Uh, we're running around 72% occupancy statewide. We're running an ADR sort of average daily rate in that same general range up to about 165 overall. But again, you, when you're talking macro versus micro, when you begin to bring that down to the local markets, you find that there are huge variations for example, if you're looking for the highest rates in Florida, you're going to be looking at Naples or the Miami markets. You know, those markets are Miami Palm Beach. Those markets are running substantially higher ADRs. Miami is about $230 a night. Uh, Naples is about $250 a night, $256 the last 12-month period I looked at. Occupancies in those markets are running slightly lower, oddly enough, than most of the rest of the state. So it really varies with, within the markets themselves, and you will find sub-markets within markets, and particularly by product type, which we haven't talked about, but where you'll find a substantially lower rate. For example, the market in Orlando never hit $100 a night until... 2000, and this is from memory, 16. And since then, we've moved from, think about all that time in history since Disney even, we finally had $100 a night in 2015 or 16. We're now at $196 a night, I'm sorry. And RevPAR is up to 146 a night. So as you talk about how things are moving, they moved dramatically based on markets and on season and on product type. So there are three major components when you talk about market. The sales market, on the other hand, which was the second part of your question, is very active and there's, as there is in most commercial real estate, a critical shortage of inventory. Uh, the reason we sold 42 hotels last year in Orlando is there was no, no inventory. There was a demand to sell 100, I promise you, or more. And that's out of, Orlando has a, a huge hotel base. We have more hotels than any city in the world, 579 hotels in the Orlando market. And we as a company only track hotels above 100 units. So if you actually took all of the mom and pops and added it to that, you're probably at 700 hotels. So hotels and motels, depending on how you class them. So when you take those lodging units and then you compare that to something like a Miami with 53,000 rooms, 
or you take it back down to a Palm Beach with 19 or a, a Naples with about 16, rates are part of that issue is the higher the quality of the rate, the higher the quality of the asset, the higher the rate, obviously. But the other reality is the higher the demand and the lower the supply in a submarket or a market, the more you're going to drive rate. It's supply demand just like anything else. RefPAR, by the way, is revenue per available room. And that number is calculated by taking the gross rooms revenue and dividing it by the number of rooms on an annualized basis. So when you hear people talk about rev, you hear basically three numbers, occupancy, which is the percentage of occupied rooms versus other commercial real estates where we talk about vacancy. You hear ADR or average daily rate, which is the average rate paid, paid per night per occupied room. And you hear RevPAR, which is the overall rate generated by every single room in the hotel. So the numbers are based on occupancy and ADR or who's actually in the house. How many rooms have I sold? How much revenue do I get? That revenue number divided by the total number of rooms in the hotel is where you get RevPAR. Clarifying that way, I want to go back because you brought up two things in answering that question. One was the 72% occupancy rate. Is that a good number? Is that an average number? What does 72% occupancy in terms of where the market is mean? It's a good number. And in a simple answer to your question, the highest occupancy markets in the state are really Orlando at about 75% and Southwest Florida, because they have such a critical need for rooms right now, at about 74%. Anything above 65% is considered to be a good number, and that's based on a whole lot of supposed calculations or presumed calculations. In other words, it takes gross operating income, takes all of your revenue sources, takes out all of your operating expenses and said what's, says what's available for debt service, and there, there's a presumption of about a 70% debt in that number. Uh, the challenge that we see now, as, as we see in all commercial real estate, is the rapid rate change because those properties that have been financed at three and three and a half and four percent. Now we're going to have to refinance at eight, eight and a half and nine percent or more. And so we're seeing some real potential impact come down the, down the pike fairly quickly here with those. Uh, balloons that are coming up in the next couple of years. But it's interesting, right, because a lot of people would think that in the occupancy rate, we're, we're really just talking about the, the people that are actually in those in those hotel keys, right, in those units. But in a, in a hotel, from what you're explaining to us, you're they're running multiple businesses all under one house. So I'm, I'm assuming that there's a correlation between how well the food and beverage aspect of it does as that occupancy rate goes up. And so, it you know, it kind of feeds into all the other, I, I think you call the profit centers that are in within the confine of the of the physical hotel. It's That's an excellent question, Fernando. What's happened is you'll recall pre-1985 to 90 range, pretty much all hotel restaurants and bars were somewhere in the belly of the hotel. They were in the middle of the lobby. They were centered inside the building. What we've seen since 1990, let's say, is a redesign component where facilities are moved more to the exterior of the hotel. You've got the restaurant on the out parcel or it, it juts out in front of the core building. So that what restaurants are doing is attempting to draw in that outside business or bars and, and nightclubs are attempting to bring in that outside business. We were in a, uh, in a hotel this week in uh, Los Angeles and my wife Susie commented that, gee, this is such a beautiful room. We were on a rooftop. And I said, I can promise you, it used to be a rooftop restaurant and bar overlooking the city. But because of access, visibility, and outside customer issues, that trend has gone away. But we went through a trend in the 80s where luxury hotels had to have rooftop restaurants and bars so that you could overlook your city or overlook the ocean or overlook the, the lake or whatever nearby. 
that trend has gone away because access and visibility of that business is not there. You have to bring people up by a special elevator. Uh, they have to know it's there to get there. So now what we've done as developers is we've pushed those operations to the street. And while they may not be as sexy, they are much more accessible and in most cases generate a great deal more revenue. So the revenue that comes from inside the house is still a major factor, but less of a factor than it was going back 20 years ago. Are you like a like a Michelin star chef that goes out to dinner? Are you a very tough grader when it comes to when you stay in hotels? I mean, you do a fair amount of travel. So I can only imagine that you must be a tough grader. <laughs> uh, I, I'm fairly critical, but I'm a nice guy, Fernando. I, mean, I, I don't attack the way I know that. And, and I don't uh, I don't typically criticize the food. I'm not somebody who sends bottles of wine back. I, I, I think you have to be critical. I don't think you can help but be critical when you travel. And if you travel a lot, you're no different than I am. If, if, you're, uh, if you're on the road, there's a natural comparison of last night I was here and tomorrow night I'm here and tonight I'm here. And what do they look like in comparison? And so, it's, it's, yeah, I think there's some critical nature to the industry. Uh, but when I was running a chain of hotels, I ran Days Ends. And I ran Hilton's. Uh, and in my own houses, I couldn't compare the operations because their rates were two and three times by comparison from lowest to highest. In a, in a previous question, you had uh, mentioned product type and that we hadn't gone into that yet. Can you expand on what you meant by product type? Absolutely. There are product tiers in the hotel business that have been around for years. Uh, the lines have become blurred somewhat. It used to be if you stayed in a Hyatt, you had a clear understanding of what a Hyatt is. Well, today a Hyatt is a Grand Hyatt, a Hyatt Regency, a Hyatt, a Hyatt House, a Hyatt Place, and now they've come out with Hyatt Studios, which is their extended stay brand. Marriott is worse because Marriott now owns 27 brands. It used to be that when you traveled to a city, you would go on a website or uh, look in a catalog or wherever you were identifying hotels and say, I want to stay in a Marriott because it's a higher class product than a Marriott courtyard. Or I want to stay in a courtyard because it provides a better rate or a, a Fairfield rather than a courtyard because it provides a better rate opportunity. That's no longer true. Uh, it's easy to go into a city and find that a Marriott courtyard will have a lower rate than the adjacent Marriott Fairfield or the Fairfield right across the street. And yet by class tier, those are flipped because Fairfield is the lower end of the product tier. So rates have really gotten pushed in all kinds of ways, again, based on demand. Uh, but class-wise, every hotel group is in pretty much every tier of, of the industry today. Uh, and you take that all the way into the luxury brands and the super luxury brands. They're now all owned by larger chains that have branded them uh, something else. And so you've got the product tier based on quality, theoretic quality. You've also got this new animal that's in the market in the last half a dozen years, that's driving the market called extended stay. And the extended stay brands, which have been around actually a long time, but have only become prominent in the last half a dozen years, really are the development darling right now uh, in the hospitality industry. And the reason is we've all heard the stories about payroll. We've all heard the stories about lack of employees. We've all heard the stories about lack of motivated employees. Uh, extended stay because of the term the guest stays in the property requires much fewer, many fewer uh, employees. And so you can run an, a hundred room extended stay with about half or a third of the number of employees you would have to have in a hundred room full service. So what we're seeing is the expansion in the hospitality industry today is occurring mostly in the extended stay product line. 
And those are hotels where people will stay anywhere from a week to a month or sometimes multiple months. Uh, and again, they too have now begun to develop specific rate tiers within the product type. Within the commercial brokerage business, we always tell people to specialize, right? That you're supposed to specialize in a market and in an asset class. Given how extensive the product type is within even the hotel industry, do you recommend that people specialize? Like I heard you say that you guys only track 100 rooms plus, but how would you recommend a brokerage firm or, or an individual who's interested in that act? asset class deciding other than on a market product type? You know, Jennifer, I, I think if I were going to start in the hotel business today, brokering from a complete flat-footed point of view, meaning no background, no experience, uh, I just decide today that I am a hotel specialist. And I've met several of those at cocktail parties, by the way, most of whom have never done a transaction. But I think I would start in that 50, 60 unit size. In today's world, that's still a big dollar. When you, when you realize that the average hotel is selling today at 100,000 plus a room, uh, and, and I mean up to the Four Seasons here in Orlando sold last year for 1.1 million a room, I would start, I think, in that 50 unit class. Uh, understanding two things. One, um, there are few corporate owners in those 50-unit properties. And pretty much all of my clients are corporate owners of some kind, uh, whether they own 10 hotels or, uh, or 500 hotels. And the second thing is that those P&Ls lack purity sometimes. So when you're looking at those financial statements, you, need, you do need to be good at reading numbers and picking them apart. Robin, you know, this industry went through a very recent uh, shock and uh, during the pandemic. Everything that you read is about how the average lady rate is higher than it was pre-pandemic and people make a mention of the hotels have come back and they have come back with a vengeance. But do you feel that there were some or that there are some permanent damage that was you know, that hit the industry as a result of having gone through through the pandemic? I mean, no, no one suffered more than hospitality sectors and, and food and beverage, um, you know, uh, restaurant um, businesses. Very accurate comment, Fernando. The industry was devastated. Clearly, no one traveled uh, for two years, basically. What I think I've seen, and it's a personal observation, is there was no industry out there to convert hotel rooms to anything. Uh, it was a hotel, it was a hotel, it was a hotel. What we saw come out of the pandemic was a new industry, and that industry was taking older hotels and beginning to convert them into something other than hospitality. Uh, some went to small business centers, some went to low-end multifamily, and a lot are still going to lower-end lower multifamily, meaning more affordable, not low end and is as bad, but uh, we're seeing that use become more consistent. That use didn't exist prior to, uh, to, the, to the pandemic. What that's done is provided a bit of a, uh, uh, an escape, if you will, for a 40-year-old motel. The value of a 40-year-old motel in the competitive world today is really marginal unless it's doing budget business and you can count on that business in the future. So we're looking at an opportunity to do something with that older, tired product in many cases uh, that didn't exist before. The industry as an operating industry has come back extremely well. Uh, we've never seen prices like we're seeing now. We've never seen rates like we're seeing now. Uh, oddly enough, we keep building, supply keeps growing. Uh, we're looking at, at Orlando, for example, adding another 5,000 rooms this year. We're, we're looking at every market in Florida adding rooms this year. So, so the reality is that supply is going to continue. Uh, and as capitalists, we always outbuild. 
so we'll keep building until occupancy start to fall pretty dramatically, I think. But there is clearly room in the market to expand. There are markets that are lacking rooms. And so as, as you look at that marketplace, I think the hospitality industry has done a remarkable job of pulling itself up, getting back to not where it was, but getting beyond well where it was. If you think about what rates were in 2016, 17, 18, compared to what rates are today, most properties would have to admit their rates are at least 50% higher. That means the values have climbed along with those rates as occupancies have, have returned. And so when you're looking at, at an Orlando market or Florida as a whole, I mean, we, we're in one of the best places we could possibly be in the country. Uh, three of the top occupancy markets in the country are in Florida. So as, as we look at markets move, we're really in an excellent place to be. And if, if you're in Florida and you're interested in hotels, by all means, you know, take a swing at it. Uh, it's, you know what, I'll, I'll co-op with anybody. So it's, <laughs> That's right. And by the way, I'll coach you. Uh, for a fee, but um, for, for, from a practical point of view, the market is there. I, I would not try to cut my teeth on trying to do a corporate deal with a REIT. Uh, I'd cut my teeth on doing four or five hotels that 50 or 60 rooms or 40 rooms or whatever. But again, I caution about the P&Ls. They are full of what I lovingly call owner benefits. And so if you're going to sell particularly mom and pop assets, be conscious of the fact that mom and pop sometimes charge things to their hotel that maybe you wouldn't think the IRS would include, like their groceries or, or their leased car or, you know, it's, uh, we sold it and it's safe to talk about it. I'll tell you a war story. We sold a Ramada in 300 rooms to a Korean family uh, a number of years ago who became dear, dear friends. And so when they went to sell it, they had owned the hotel five or six years and and the owner called me and, and it's fair to talk about this story because it's the building's no longer there. They demolished it and it's uh, and she returned to Korea. But I went out and sat down with her and, and as I was going through her P&Ls, I looked at the numbers and I said, why is your food cost so high? And she said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, let's look at it for a minute. And so we started talking and we got into a conversation. Well, she was buying her groceries, her grown daughter's groceries, uh, God knows who else's groceries out of the hotel food supplies. Uh, we got down to leases and there were seven leased vehicles for the hotel. And this is a 300 room Ramada. I said, uh, you don't even have a shuttle bus. Well, no, that's my son-in-law's car. That's my daughter's car. That's my husband's car. I said, okay, so let's take that out. So we go through the entire thing was like this. We finally get down to the last line on the P&L and it says tuition. And I said, okay, I'm afraid to ask. And she said, oh yeah, that's Julia's tuition. She had gone to college, actually law school. So when you go through those mom and pop P&Ls, anything that's privately owned, you do have to have the savvy to pull those numbers out and make the adjustments. If the owner of the property is managing it and you're going to sell it to an investor, you now have to plug in a manager's salary. So there are adjustments to be made on both sides, and you need to be savvy enough to, with the numbers to pick those up life insurance policies, uh, which may be completely legitimate, by the way, they can be key man. Uh, but those numbers that would not apply to a future buyer increase the value of your asset that you're trying to sell if you're the listing broker. Great advice. Great advice. You had mentioned when we were talking about all the different brands, how they're layered, and there have been a lot of acquisitions. What's your outlook for 2024 um, for both national and state? for the hotel industry? Outlook in terms of values, occupancies, 
What are you, what are you referring to, Jennifer? Remember, Robin, he, she asked five questions in one. So I think she means the entire. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to make it a short question. So go for whatever you want to talk about. Let's talk about the, the, the operations because they lead to values. How about that? Uh, I legitimately think that we're going to have a flat hotel year. People disagree with that. I've had this debate with particularly hotel owners. Uh, I think from an occupancy point of view, we will run, e even in Florida, flat to a minor decline in occupancy, maybe a point, point and a half in occupancy. On the other hand, I think average rates will continue to climb. The reason hotels haven't been impacted by any softness in occupancy is the fact that rates have moved so rapidly. Their rev cars have continued to grow. So we've seen values continue to increase. I think we'll continue to see values stabilize, but with moving cap rates, I'm not sure we're going to see a lot of escalation in values in 2024. I think we'll see rev bar slightly above where it is today because of rate. Uh, I think we'll see rate go up slightly. I think we'll see occupancy decline slightly. And I think values will likely stick pretty close to where they are today, only because cap rates are, are now decompressing and moving up. Uh, and as we're watching cap rates approach 8, 9, 10% in specific markets, it has to be impacted. It has to impact the individual, individual unit pricing. So, you know, the, the world according to Webb, which I warn my clients is sometimes flawed, says that we'll be about where we are next year at this time today. Well, I think, I think Robin, you learn now that if you're ever going to get a question from Jennifer, it's got to be like almost like a Chinese restaurant. It's everything from column A, everything from column B, and then just go at it. <laughs> I'm curious. This it's good to have a smorgasbord. I can, I can pick and choose from him. Yeah, <laughs> I figure I only have an hour with him. I need right. to like get all my curiosity questions answered. And I did want to throw out just because um, Robin had mentioned the um, refinancing issue that is coming up that um, the Trepwire podcast from October 24th, that episode did say that well-positioned assets are being refinanced. He did say there was a JW Marriott in Orlando that was able to get a $750 million loan with a loan to value of 62%. And then there were two hotels, um, part of one refinance, um, the Surf Club in Surfside and Palm Beach, which was a $410 million loan on two hotels um, with a loan to value of 52%. And um, Lonnie had stated that 60 to 65% loan to value is normal, is, is kind of normal average conditions. Are you seeing, or do you think that's the way we're going in Florida for some of these refis? I, I think you're right on point. 60% loan to value is probably the max we're going to see for a while. What we are seeing is very aggressive lending in the extended stay development market. There is so much money that wants to be in that place that there is a massive amount of money being thrown at the extended stay market in every product tier. I mean, every every class of product, every brand of product that we are seeing come to market, uh, there is money chasing transactions, particularly new development deals. And so if, you know, we're looking for, as a company, we're looking for sites for a number of extended stay companies. And to give you an idea, we can't find enough sites. We're looking all over Florida and finding enough sites that make economic sense to develop a hotel on uh, is the is the larger larger challenge than getting finance. There seems to be virtually no issue in getting an extended stay hotel finance. Typical margins, though, when we're looking at loan to value, we're typically looking at sixty five to seventy five percent loan to value in a really healthy, aggressive market. Usually fifty five to sixty in a in a conservative market like we're in now, particularly with escalating rates, that coverage is you know gets to be very questionable when uh, when you start moving that rate up. 
Interesting. It's good to know that somewhere, someone somewhere out there is lending money, especially to this asset class. That's amazing because that's not what we, you know, what on a national scale we're hearing about commercial real estate. So that's great news. So in, you know, respect of your time and gratitude for all the knowledge you've shared for with us, um, he's going to pass on the fun stat. But he's given us so many. <laughs> I mean, this entire episode is full of fun stats. So what do you what do you got for our, for our fun stat as we finish out? So first of all, I just want to say I always thought retail was like the fun asset class, yeah. but now I'm thinking mm, a hotel might be right on par with retail for fun asset class. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I'm so grateful. I'm gonna go through and listen because it was so much information. I really really appreciate you always being so. Generous generous with your knowledge and your time. So thank you so much, Robin. Well, thank you both. My fun stat real quick, and, and Robin touched on it a little bit, was according to travel.com, nine out of the top 10 hotels for the ultimate splurge are in South Florida. In the Keys, they include Little Palm Island, Ocean Key Resort and Spa, and Sunset Cottages. In Miami, the Four Seasons Miami, the St. Regis Ball Harbor, the Satai Miami Beach, and in Palm Beach, O Palm Beach Resort and Spa, the Breakers Palm Beach, and the Boca Raton. Beach Club. And I was surprised Naples wasn't on this list because this was for all of Florida. And there was one in Orlando, but since it wasn't South Florida, I didn't write the name down. Sorry, Robin. Shame on you. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> well, as you go crazy pulling it up, I, I was pulling this information from the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau. I always enjoy learning how things are measured, right? And in any every asset class, things are measured a little differently and, and they carry a certain importance. But one of the things that they mentioned is that more hotel guests have accounted for 17.1 million hotel room nights sold in 2022 in Miami which represents a 12.7% increase. So I was doing the math, and at 53,000 rooms times 365 days, that's over 19 million nights uh, if you put it all together, and we're at 17.1. So I thought that that was an interesting way of measuring where the, the hotel industry is in Miami. So I just wanted to share that uh, with, with everyone. And I did find the one in, in Orlando. It was the Ritz-Carlton Orlando Grand Lakes. Thank God you did, because you wouldn't have been able to sleep I tonight. <laughs> Poor Carlos. <laughs> Robin, you're absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for being a part of this. This uh, has been absolutely a joy for, for both of us to be a part of. So thank you again, sir. Thank you both. I hope we got what you wanted. Definitely. And then some. Absolutely.